Good evening. Welcome to everybody here. This is a travel weekend, being the holidays, and so a large number of our own members are out of town, but we have visitors, and we're especially grateful that you're here tonight to join us. I'd also like to express my appreciation to the elders for extending the opportunity for me to present you tonight in Ken's absence. I hope to bring you a lesson that will um, highlight an aspect of our spiritual walk that we need to focus on from time to time. If there are any questions uh, about what's being taught or what we've done, certainly bring that to my attention or one of the other members here, and we'd love to study with you, discuss it with you, um, and, and modify if need be. Um, it's truly a blessing that God has given us an organization such as this, where children can meet and worship together and encourage each other. And it's called many things in the Bible. Christ Church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the household of God, the kingdom. But the common thing amongst all of these things is that Christ is the center. He is the reason that we are all joined together in this relationship. As such, there are certain principles that should guide how we act and respond to one another. Luke 22, verse 25, Jesus says, The king of the Gentiles exercises lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is great among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus has called each one of us to be a servant. When you think of what a Christian is, that's really one of the top things that comes to mind. It's, it's a person who is serving one another. We're to love one another, as we learn in 1 John 4 and 7. And Ephesians 5 and 21 states that we need to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. By serving others, we're placing other people's needs and desires over perhaps our own, in submission of them. When we come in contact with the grace of God through the blood of Christ, our bodies, our lives, should be changed, transformed, as it talks about in Romans 12. It should no longer reflect the self-gratifying person it was before that baptism. Rather, it should be a life that's patterned after the life of Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself to me. Now, after baptism, after we've come in contact with the grace of God, our lives should be about self-sacrifice, just as his life was while he was here on earth. It's about seeking after the things that are pleasing to God. It's about using my gifts to submit to his will, into the needs of others and serve them, just as Christ sacrificed himself to serve me and to meet my own personal needs as well in terms of salvation. And that means at times our desires are going to be overshadowed by the needs of others in the church for their benefit. That brings us to our text tonight of Romans 14. So what I'd like to do at this time, instead of reading portions of it and break it up and talk about it, what I'd like to do is read the chapter in the entirety, all the way through chapter 15 and verse 7, and then have some topic points, and the lesson will be yours. So Romans 14 and verse 1, if you will turn there, please. Romans 14 and verse 1. 
receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things, for if one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let him not let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe it the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gets God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat, he gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Lord Jesus, joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Jesus Christ, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So, what's going on in this passage? What is Paul discussing? Well, he's describing two types of individuals here. One he describes as being weak in the faith, and one is being described as strong in the faith. 
We're going to talk more about these people in a moment. But what they are doing is uh, disputing and judging one another over doubtful things. The English Standard Version and New American Standard render this as opinions, while the NIV translates it as disputable matters. Vine, in his New Testament dictionary, defines it as decisions of doubt. These are matters of personal judgment or internal reasoning. This chapter is not discussing areas in which God has already spoken, such as doctrinal matters. He's been clear regarding things that we should refrain from, things that are sinful. These are things such as murder, or envy, or greed, or forsaking the assembly, or lying, or selfishness. These are things that bring us out of a relationship with God and out of a relationship with each other within the church. These are sinful and wrong every single time. And Paul's not discussing these in this chapter. Likewise, he's not discussing the things that God has shown clearly, clearly through his word that we should be doing, such as worshiping on the first day of the week, or being baptized, or partaking of the Lord's Supper, or singing, or providing for our families and loving one another. These are the things that God has commanded directly through commands in the, in the New Testament, or has shown through consistent apostolic examples or necessary conclusions that he wants us to be doing these things. If we refrain from doing these things, we're sinning. Because God's expectation is that we're doing them. This is not what Paul is talking about in this passage. Rather, Paul is discussing things that are good and right in and of themselves, but God is indifferent as to whether we do them or refrain from doing them. They're actions that are consistent with principles set forth in the New Testament for a godly life, but are not commanded directly by God. As such, they're permissible and acceptable if we wish to engage in them, but we have the liberty to act as we see fit with the freedom that God's given us and are not required to do these things according to doctrine. They're matters of personal judgment. Opinions. Well, what, are these doctrine, what are these disputable things or these doubtful things? Within the context of the passages, the weak and the strong are disputing over two specific things. One is the eating of meats. What kinds of food should they be eating? And the other is the observation of specific days for, for religious reasons. Now, under the law of Moses, some animals were defined as being unclean. We have a list of that in Leviticus 11. Eating one of these animals would have been considered sinful for a Jew because it was a violation of God's law to those Jews. Additionally, God set aside uh, specific days for the people to remember him and honor what he has done for them. Days like the Passover or uh, the Sabbath or the various feast days that were on the Jewish calendar. To disregard these days by not observing them or keeping them holy was sinful under the law of Moses. Now, when Christ came, the law of Moses was put away. It was nailed to the cross. And so these things were no longer commanded by God for the Jews. The church in Rome was comprised of a lot of Jews and Gentiles. It was a good mix, and they worshipped together, but there was conflict and division. The Jewish Christians were reluctant to accept the Gentiles as children of God. They were people who the Jews had looked down upon for centuries as being unclean and defiled and barbarians. It was difficult for them to associate with the people who were so vastly different in customs and habits, even though Christ had come and united them together in one body. Some of the Jews continued also to struggle with realizing fully 
that that old law had been nailed to the cross. It is no longer in effect. They no longer had to worry about what animals they were going to eat or what days they had to observe. And they wished to continue doing those things. Additionally, under Roman and Grecian culture, animals were frequently sacrificed to false gods in the temples. The animals were taken, they were slaughtered, and some of the meat was offered. And then some of the meat was taken to the marketplace where it was sold to the people and they could take it home and eat if they wished to do so. Now, a lot of the Jews had difficulty buying that piece of meat because they felt if they did so, they would be participating in idolatry. Additionally, some of the Gentiles who had come out of idolatry in the past struggled with buying and eating that meat for the exact same reason. They felt they were partaking in idolatrous actions. But not everyone believed this way. Some of the Jews wanted to bind portions of the old law on the Gentiles. It became such an issue, it was direct, dire, directly addressed by the apostles in Acts 15. Some of the Jews rejected these ideas, and some Christians, Jews and Gentiles, felt they could do whatever they wanted, eat whatever they wanted, observe whatever days they wanted, or not observe the days they wanted, regardless of what their fellow brethren believed or felt about the subject. There was conflict when there should have been unity in Christ. Well, we have some of these issues today. It's not always easy for us to have that unity as well, even though God has invited everyone to come and worship and to be obedient to him. This includes all people coming from all kinds of different backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different social and political beliefs, different rates of growth and spiritual maturity and knowledge. And as a result, there can easily be conflict in, uh, over the things that God has left up to personal judgment and opinions because we're all coming from a different place. What kinds of things are these? Well, the observation of special days is one of them. Kevin alluded to this this morning, and Ken spoke about it last week. But Ken's lesson is up on the website and Facebook if you wish to go back and listen to it. Tomorrow, many in the religious world will be celebrating Christmas as a religiously oriented day. Aside from the first day of the week, God has not established specific days for us to come together and remember him as he did under the law of Moses. And so a number of Christians have chosen to celebrate the Christmas holiday as a secular holiday or a family holiday where they come together and they have a meal and they enjoy each other's company and they give gifts. Other Christians choose not to celebrate it at all because of its origin as a pagan holiday in the ancient times or a quote-unquote religious holiday under Catholicism. Some Christians decide not to observe any holidays at all because many of them have initial pagan or religious origins, such as Easter or Halloween. Any of these actions, observing the holidays in a secular fashion or refraining from observing them, would fall into the area of personal judgment and is permissible by God. He is indifferent towards whether we do those things in a secular or a social way. Well, cultural differences may be another one of these areas. There are lots of cultural cultures in this world that are very, very different from ours. Let's use clothing as an example. In our culture, we dress up on Sundays for worship. We're usually a little more casual on Wednesdays. Now, if someone came in to worship with us from a different culture 
let's say where they're casual all the time, or they don't have clothing that they set aside as special or dressy, and they wanted to worship with us, how would they be received? Let's take that another step further. Suppose that person that came in was a person from the Middle East who had been raised as Muslim. Now they've come to accept Jesus Christ. They've been baptized for the remission of their sins. They are a Christian now. But because of their background and their conscience, it is difficult for them to put away some of those traditions they have in their past, such as perhaps their dress. If we had a Christian came in who was dressed in a way that's consistent with a Muslim culture, how would they be received? Would we welcome them? Would we worship with them? Would we be fearful and judgmental? These are Christians we're talking about. What about dealing with family members who have fallen away from the Lord? Now, a few months ago, Stephen presented a scriptural-based lesson on this. The Bible's clear that if the member of the church falls away or is engaged in false teaching and refuses to repent after multiple attempts have been made to teach and admonish such a one, the erring brother or sister should be put away for the sake of the local body and their own soul in the hope that one day they will repent and return to Christ. We find this in 1 Corinthians 6. Matthew 18. This is not something that's easy to do, but it is one of our responsibilities of Christians. This is one of the things that God expects us to do. And so it is not a matter of personal judgment. Now, there are other passages in the Bible that command us to provide for our physical families. This includes the command to honor our father and mother or provide for our children and teach them in the ways of the Lord. Submit to our husband. Love your wife and dwell with her with understanding. We see this in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6, 1 Peter 3, and a variety of other places. There is judgment involved in balancing these commands with a responsibility to withdraw from an erring brother. Just because they are members of our family does not exempt them from a change in fellowship if they have fallen away and refused to repent. This isn't a matter of personal judgment. Sin has changed our relationship for the worse. However, there is judgment involved in balancing the needs to care for one's wife or husband, elderly parents, or children when in need. What about more than one weekly service? We have approved apostolic examples in the New Testament of the church's meeting on the first day of the week to worship God and partake of the Lord's Supper. But a number of churches today in our culture choose to meet multiple times during the week. There's no command or example of the New Testament church doing this, but it doesn't violate any of the principles or commands laid out in Scripture. Many elders have elected to hold a midweek service for the Christians in that local congregation to come together away from the negative influence of the world and worship together and edify one another. This is a matter of personal judgment based on what they believe to be best for the local flock that they oversee. Here, our shepherds have decided to continue with our tradition of meeting on Wednesday night. Other places is different. Daniel Bunting was here a few months ago and said that the church where he preaches in New York elects to meet on Tuesdays. Other congregations may not meet at all during the middle of the week. Now, it should be stated that while it's a matter of judgment whether or not the congregation meets midweek over a second service on Sunday, it is not a matter of judgment whether we attend those services. We are to submit ourselves to the oversight of our elders, 1 Peter 5. 
Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 are clear that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Doing so is a violation of the commands and principles laid out in the New Testament. If we have the opportunity to meet together as a whole flock or at a prescribed time established by our elders, we need to take advantage of that, and we need to assemble, because that is what God's expectation is for us. However, the initial decision over meeting or not meeting for a second or a third or a fifth weekly service is a matter of opinion and will vary from congregation to congregation because God has not been clear regarding this. What about displaying emotions in the assembly? Many Christians will say amen if they agree strongly with something that's said or taught or prayed. Some shout hallelujah or spontaneously clap after someone has been baptized out of joy. Some may tear up or smile openly while they're singing or they're praying. Some song leaders may be more animated while they're leading singing out of joy. Some Christians worship with more subdued emotions. Again, either is permissible as long as it's a matter of personal judgment, what you believe to be appropriate in that situation. And these are just a few things that may bring us into conflict with one another over the matters of opinion. There are more. But when these conflicts arise, what do we do about it? How do we manage these conflicts? Now, in addressing, there we go, in addressing these issues, Paul describes the individuals in conflict as either being strong or weak. We're going to look at these individuals, have a better, better understanding of what our responsibility is in these situations. So who is the weak brother? Well, he's not weak in his belief in Christ and the power of his blood to take away our sins, or any of the other doctrinal matters. If he were, if he were confused or did not believe correctly about one of these things, the commands of Paul given in this passage would be inconsistent with other passages. Rather, the weak Christian is one who is weak on a given topic and how he should act. He has doubts about some, certain things, what his personal liberties are. We see in chapter 14 and verse 2 <coughs> that he is one who is eating only vegetables. He struggles to eat meat that is forbidden under the law of Moses or may have been offered in a pagan temple before being sold in the marketplace. We see in verse 5 and 6 that he's esteeming one day over the other. He is holding those special days, those special feast days, those special holidays that are commanded in the law of Moses. Doing anything other than these things would be a violation of his conscience. And we see in verse 21 that he is stumbling over the liberty of his strong brother by seeing him do it and being tempted to partake as well. Let's read 21 again. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. The weak Christian is one who is stumbling, being offended and is made weak by the liberty of his others. But he's not ignorant in faith. He just has those lingering doubts. He's not been fully convinced regarding the truth of that issue. And as a result, he is still grieved by certain foods and cannot eat without taking offense or becoming weaker. This is an offense to his conscience because he is not eating in faith. And as we see in verse 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. He intellectually may understand and know what God has revealed about it, but his heart has not yet been fully convinced. His conscience is not adjusted to his God-given liberties to the point where he can partake in those actions without feeling guilty about it, without, uh, without wounding his conscience. Well, who's the strong brother? 
he's strong in his faith. He knows that God has already received him. He's accepted by God as a Christian. He knows, as Paul did, what the Lord has revealed and what is left up to personal judgment. Look at verse 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Verse 20, all things are pure. He's one who's strong in his faith. He's convicted. He's convinced. He doesn't offend his conscience when he eats any type of food. He observes all the days the same, without guilt. He doesn't condemn himself in what he approves. He's enjoying his given liberty without grieving his conscience. Verse 22, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So how should these individuals act towards one another? How should these conflicts be resolved? What are their responsibilities to one another? Well, to the weak, Paul says that he should not condemn the stronger brother. This is because he's been accepted by God. Verse 3, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. God has revealed that the stronger brother does something that has already been decided as acceptable. In Mark 7, in verse 18, Jesus said, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? Jesus is saying that what you choose to eat or not eat has nothing to do with your spiritual salvation. You're standing before God. What you eat or don't eat or the days you observe or don't observe cannot make you a defiled or cannot defile your soul and make you unacceptable towards God. The weak brother knows this, and if he didn't know it before, he certainly knows it upon reading Paul's words in verse 20, that all things are pure, all food is pure. So it's not an, an issue of lack of understanding or knowledge, but rather it's an issue of weak conscience. Furthermore, the weak brother shouldn't condemn the stronger one because the stronger brother is God's servant. He's not the servant of the weaker brother. It would be inappropriate to judge one's servant or employee or worker based on my criteria or my expectations. They're not responsible to me. They're not responsible to meet my expectations. Rather, they are solely answerable to their master or their employer. We can't judge or condemn another servant whom God has accepted. Christians are answerable to him only, and such judgments belong to Christ alone. In verse 10, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. God has set the expectations for us to meet as his servants. We will be found acceptable or wanting by his measure only. As such, the judgments of others are, frankly, irrelevant. Now, Paul's not saying that we should talk to someone who is sinning or talk to them about that, um, or they should, that person who is sinning should not be accepted. Remember, we're talking about matters of personal judgment here. Accepting one who is habitually and willfully sinning is a violation of other passages in the Bible. We need to stand up against sin because the person who is sinning is violating God's expectations, not ours. And that's where uh, that judgment can be made. 
Rather, Paul's saying we shouldn't condemn someone who's obedient to what God has already revealed to be true. And then also, the weak Christian should not act in a way that violates his conscience. Only act in ways that you can do with full conviction. Verse 5. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Don't do something that you have doubts about. God's Serving God with a clear conscience is important. Christ died so that we can have a clean conscience before him. In Hebrews 9 and verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? When we act in a way that's not in faith, in full conviction, we do so in sin. Again, look at verse 23. But he who doubts is commended if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That means that even if God is okay with someone acting in a certain way or taking a certain action, if you have doubts about it but you do it anyway, that's sinful to you because your, your conscience convicts you. If I don't think I should observe Christmas as a secular holiday, but I go to the work Christmas party or I go join a, a Christian in their home on that time and we celebrate Christmas together, that's wrong for me to do because my conscience convicts me of it. I'm not acting in full faith even though God has permitted me to do so. Now, the strong also has responsibilities. They need to receive the weak. The attitude of the world is to look down upon those who believe things that are different especially in the area of morals. But this isn't how God would have us treat one another. Just as God received the strong brother in verse 3, he also accepted the weak brother. It would be ridiculous for a Christian to reject a brother or sister who's serving God and making an effort to grow and do the best that they can. That's not love. Rejecting a fellow member who has been received already by Christ is to place our will above the will of God. It's to presume that you know better than he does about who should be accepted and not accepted. We also need to be careful that when we accept one, we do it with the right attitude. Verse 1, don't receive him to argue or cause uh, disputes. Don't despise him in your heart or contempt, show contempt for him, as we see in verse 3 and verse 10. There should be no ulterior motive here. We shouldn't receive them for the purpose of convincing them or changing their mind. There should be no inward feeling of superiority because they can't do something that I can in good faith. Paul's not calling any of the brethren enlightened or ignorant here. His point is to show how we should conduct ourselves towards one another. All Christians should be welcomed openly and without hesitation. Love bears all things. If we have the love of Christ, we should show it towards our fellow brethren. Uh, verse 15, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Skipping to verse 21, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. The strong needs to be careful not to put a stumbling block in front of the weaker. Don't use your liberty in a way that will make them grieve through a wounded conscience. Don't let your goods be spoken of as evil, and don't weaken them with your liberty. In 1 Corinthians 8, which is a companion passage to Romans 14, 
Paul writes, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idol? It is possible for you to cause someone to sin through your example. If the weaker brother who believes they should only eat meat, sees you eating meat, is tempted to eat that meat, and does it, they violated their conscience. They've sinned in doing so because they're following your example, even though it's okay for you to do it. Remember, the weak brother is not considered weak because they don't have the knowledge. Rather, their conscience is weak regarding something that God has permitted. When one who is strong boasts about his knowledge, engages in his liberties, and causes someone else to stumble by following an example, then the strong is being revealed as the one who truly doesn't have knowledge. Knowledge of the value of that person to Christ, knowledge of how Christ would have us treat one another within the church as a spiritual family. When we're exercising our freedom at the expense of another, while, we, while what we are doing may be good in and of itself, it becomes evil if it brings harm to our brother. It brings reproach upon you and the church. It will lead to conflict and division within the church. We should not destroy one another over our personal liberty. Now, in verse 15, which I read a moment ago uh, in Romans 14, uh, my version says, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Some version used the word <coughs> offend there. We need to be careful that we are not defining the word offend as it is in this passage, in this context, with our culture's definition of offense. Paul is not saying or suggesting that we should stop engaging in an activity simply because someone doesn't like it. Rather, the word destroys much more accurate what Paul is saying here. If or when we tempt someone to violate their conscience because they're following our example, we're destroying their soul for the sake of liberty, that soul whom Christ has died for. When we're doing this, we are the ones who are sinning as well. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 12, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. God may be indifferent as to whether you eat that meat or you only eat vegetables, or you observe that special day or you don't. But he's never indifferent towards someone who would cause his children to stumble and fall. It's wrong for us to purposely make it harder for our brethren to serve God in good faith. Now, some of these personal judges may be in, in, inconsequential to you, and that's okay. But others truly struggle with them because their, God, their conscience guides them to do something else. Don't tempt them to go against what they believe to be right. The human soul is so much more valuable than eating or drinking or observing a special day or partaking in any of these other personal liberties that we've been talking about. Instead, we should be pursuing peace and edification in the church. Chapter 14 and verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. The kingdom of God is not about food. It's about righteousness and joy and peace. 
The one who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God, regardless of whether he eats meat or vegetables, observes days as being special or not. All of us, strong and weak, should strive to do the things that will bring peace and edification in the church. Our goal should be to build each other up. In chapter 15, in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor as his good, for his good, leading to edification. This is not a passive command. We can't simply tolerate those we consider to be weak and edify them. It takes work. It takes effort to cultivate the peace and harmony and edification that God expects within the church. This may mean that we need to refrain from engaging our personal liberties to help our fellow sh- uh, Christians through submitting to them. In 1 Corinthians uh, 10, and verse 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. In chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Here's the attitude of Paul. If something I'm doing causes my brother to become offended, in the sense that he's being tempted, and he sins following my example, I'm going to stop doing that. Because Christ died for that person. And I do not want to make that in vain. I need to help that brother become stronger. I need to help them have an understanding of what we're doing. And I need to make sure that I'm not sinning as well. This can only be accomplished if we are seeking after the advantage of others and not behaving in a selfish way to pursue my desires over the need of my brethren. This can only be accomplished through serving one another through the sacrificial love that Christ showed on the cross. Christ loved each one of us. In turn, we're expected to show the same love toward our brethren by sacrificing so that they can grow and become stronger in their faith. We need to strive to be one mind, glorifying the God and Father in all that we do. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32, Paul writes, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So how do we manage these conflicts? We don't condemn one another. We don't act in ways that are going to violate our conscience, but we receive one another in love. We don't cause anyone to stumble. and We're pursuing peace and edification in all that we do. Let's go over some quick application points and the lesson will be yours. First of all, we need to be sure that we truly have liberty. When you claim that something is a matter of personal judgment, are you sure? Have you studied deeply enough to know that, yes, it is an area of personal judgment, Or are you simply pursuing your own agenda because that's something that you want to be doing? Are you acting in a way because you think it's okay or because God has truly granted you that freedom to do so? Does it actually meet the definition of an opinion? Is it an action that's defined by God as sinful somewhere else in Scripture? If it does, it's not a matter of opinion. Is it an action that God has authorized and actually expects you to do? If it is, it's not a matter of opinion. Is it something that's consistent with living a godly life and is permissible and acceptable to him, but he has not expressed a desire for you to do it or refrain from doing it? That's a matter of opinion. If we believe it to be an area of personal judgment, but it isn't, we may be violating the word of God. We may be sinning. We may be causing other people to sin as well by following our example. We need to be open and honest in all that we do. And if we claim it to be a personal liberty, We need to know that it is because God has truly given us that liberty. 
Additionally, if someone comes to us with concerns regarding our behavior, we need to be humble enough to reevaluate our actions and compare them to the word to be sure that what we're doing and what we thought to be right in the past still holds true today. We need to be empathetic one for another. We need to identify them with them on an emotional level. This is something that sometimes is difficult for me. When Audrey and I first got married, <coughs> we were poor, and so we didn't go to do a whole lot. And so we sat at home, and I, we watched TV sometimes. And what I showed her were shows that I grew up watching, one of them being Star Trek. And Spock came on the screen, empathetic, non-empathetic, robotic Spock. And she turned and looked at me and was like, oh, now I understand. Because Spock was important to me when I was growing up because he was logical and I thought he was smart. And I adopted some of those traits into my personality. But if I am dealing with my Christian brethren, I need to be empathetic. I do need to make their struggles personal to me. I need to place myself in the shoes that they walk in. We've all been weak Christians at some point, And to be fair... Most of us are strong regarding some things and weak regarding other things. Realize how difficult it may be watching someone do something that you have a problem doing or in your conscience struggle with. What you're doing may be permissible by God, but how does it make others feel and act? Are you making it hard for them to serve God faithfully? Are you tempting them to do something that violates their conscience? On the other side of that argument, is it something that truly causes you offense leading to sin? Are you asking someone to forsake their personal liberty because it makes, you hard, makes it hard for you to serve God or because they're doing something that you simply don't like? If you aren't tempted by it, but rather just don't like it, it doesn't, co- you, co- it doesn't cause you offense. It doesn't cause you to be tempted in sin. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6 and 33. Just as you want men to do to you, you do also to them likewise. We need to trust one another. We're all strong in some things and weak in others. And if someone in a Christian family is making it hard for you to follow God, go to them. Talk to them. Study with them. We should all be serving God and one another in love. We may have different convictions regarding some of our liberties, but our motives should be all the same. To honor God, to encourage one another, and pursue peace and edification. We should have each other's best interests at heart. Remember, we're supposed to be servants, submissive servants one to another. We should be willing to help each other out without judgment. If you're struggling and you choose not to go talk to that person, the temptation, the danger is still there. Why wait? Go. Talk to them. They may be able to explain to you the freedom in a way that helps remove the offense. You may not be able to partake of it, but you may be able to understand why they can in clear conscience. and The offense may no longer be there. Trust that they will help you and change their behavior if needed so that you can continue to follow God with a clear conscience just as they do when they act. And then finally, we need to grow together. We're all striving to have no division amongst ourselves. In chapter 15 and verse 5, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We need to be of one mind in agreement on all that we're doing. We need to be studying together to overcome our differences. We need to help each other grow so that we're all strong in the faith. This was actually the prayer of Jesus. In John 17 and verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that is the apostles' word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the word may believe that you sent me, that the world may believe that you sent me. Skipping to verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. We will be presenting a much more powerful message to the world if we're doing it in unison, with one mind, with one firm conviction. In doing so, we show the world that the love of Jesus is applicable to everyone. Jesus accepts everyone who's obedient, regardless of their background, their race, their strengths when they come to them. As long as they're coming in faith and conviction, he accepts them. We'll be displaying the heart of one of God's servants when we do so. One who will willingly sacrifice to help spread the gospel of Christ. One who will sacrifice for their fellow brethren or sister to serve one another. And one who will strive to honor God in all that they do. We need to be serving and submitting ourselves to one another with gladness. It's what Christ did. And it's what he expects me to do. Next week marks the beginning of the new year. And in our society a time of self-reflection, where we look back to where we've been and forward where we need to be going. Let's all resolve to do a better job, or let's all resolve to continue committing and serving to one another. As we sang before uh, the lesson, imagine the things that we can do together when we're working in harmony as Christ's body is intended to work in fashion. So, how can we serve you tonight? Are you a Christian? Do you want to become a part of his church? Do you need to be baptized into his death, turning away from the sins of your past, and be found acceptable to him? Are you a Christian who's been pursuing your own desires in a way that's sinful? Have you turned away from God and his word? Do you need the prayers of this church to help you turn back towards God? We can help you. We can pray for you. We can study with you. If anyone has a need that we can meet, We want to serve. We want to help. We just ask that you come forward and make your needs known while we stand and sing.